Thanks for joining us today. We believe God is going to do great things in your life, and we want to hear about it. Send us your story at mystory@summitsa.com and let us know what He's done for you through this ministry. If you'd like to partner with us or bless us with a financial gift, go to summitsa.com and give an amount that works best for you. Now enjoy the message and have a blessed day. We're in a series we call Choices Have Consequences. We're talking about being responsible or irresponsible. And the first thing we looked at in our series was the victim complex, the blame game. It's always somebody else's fault. I'm not responsible. So we live in a nation and a culture with no-fault divorce, no-fault insurance. But how many of you know somebody's at fault? Yeah, but it's just stupid. But the whole idea is I don't care if it's government or it's celebrities or it's uh, political or whatever it may be, nobody's responsible. Just the most amazing thing to me. I grew up in, a, I grew up in an age when I was responsible when I wasn't responsible, and I'd get a whipping. I didn't have any time out to get time out to get my breath, but that's about it. And it taught me you are responsible. So then we talked about in our second stage that my irresponsibility becomes somebody else's responsibility. If you're driving down the highway and you see all the don't mess with Texas signs, it's because lots of people are messing with Texas, throwing trash out the window. So we got to pay taxes. It's costing us. Somebody has to be hired. Somebody has to clean the median and the side of the road because people are irresponsible and nasty. That's why. And then third, we talked about last week the invisible universal principle. You sow and you reap. You reap what you sow. And we said that's not a judgmental uh, scripture. It's not a, um, it's not a religious one. It, 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 it's not good, it's not bad, it's not godly, it's not ungodly. It's a law. You reap what you sow. It says, if I sow corn, I'm going to reap corn. And we learned about sowing and reaping that you reap uh, later than you sow. You don't usually reap immediately. The divorce notice usually comes sometime later. Hmm. And you reap more than you sow. God says he multiplies the seed that you sow. Now, pretty much, I grew up hearing sowing and reaping related only to money. But nothing could be further from the truth. It's to every area in life. You eat badly for years, it's going to show up in your health. You spend money foolishly, extravagantly, you get in financial trouble, you don't say the devil's attacking me. You're reaping what you sowed. So you can use any of these laws to your advantage or disadvantage. You can leverage them for good, or you can ignore them to your own demise. So you reap what you sow, you reap later than you sow, and you reap more than you sow. So why not, if you don't like what you're reaping, why don't you change what you sow? Duh. How hard is that? Do I have to get filled with the Holy Ghost, speak in tongues, have 14 prophets prophesy over me to, to realize I could be on cocaine and figure that out? Right? Come on, sober up. Yeah, yeah. I want you to walk out and say I'm responsible. You know, when I go driving down the highway at 80 miles an hour and the highway patrol pulls me over to give me a ticket when it's a 65-mile-an-hour speed limit, I don't say it's not my fault. It is my fault. I am responsible. 
I'm guilty. I always tell the officer I'm guilty. A soft, soft answer turns away maybe a ticket. I don't know. You try it. But it's true. I never, I never said to any officer in all my years of driving, gee, I didn't know I was going that fast. No, I knew I was going that fast. I actually planned to go that fast, pushed on the accelerator to go that fast, and did go that fast. And so did you. So did you. So we talked about sowing and reaping. Now, tonight, we move into part three, and we're going to talk about a little story in the book of Joshua, chapter 7. It addresses the religious people who want to pray instead of act. Would it surprise you to know there are places in the Bible where your prayer does no good? You have to actually do something. And so we're going to take a look at that and uh, just give you one illustration, and then I'd like to throw in a few more out of, out of real life. Sometimes people who are not Christians look at a bunch of Christians who are always praying, and a lot of them are thinking if they don't say it, you know, man, you need to quit praying and you need to do something about this problem. It requires an action. Another group this story addresses, and I'm going to read it in a minute, is those who have misguided compassion. Misguided compassion is when you are a compassionate person, but you apply it incorrectly. When you see people act irresponsibly, instead of holding them accountable, you try to think of all the reasons why it's okay for them to have acted irresponsibly. Well, he had a tough start. Well, she's not as smart as everybody else in the class. Well, he didn't come from a good home. But by that kind of thinking, you're actually facilitating and helping people be irresponsible. We need to change this culture and, and zip up and get some people responsible. Uh, it would change our culture dramatically. It would change life, families, homes, our nation, uh, our churches, if people would just be responsible. Because when you're irresponsible, it's going to cost other people. If you're a leader or you're a volunteer and you, you're, you're signed up to serve in some area in the church uh, or anywhere in life, and you don't show up for crying out loud, your irresponsibility is going to hurt a bunch of people and cause problems. Your irresponsibility means somebody else has got to cover your, your failed responsibility. You just threw the burden on other people. Uh, we have doctors in here. We have lawyers in here. And I, I, the reason they have to make so many advance calls is because people make an appointment and don't show up. And then they've had the book scheduled, so they've got nothing scheduled for that time. And people, for them, that's how they make their money. they got patients scheduled. That's my income. I want to do it appropriately. But if you don't show up, then I miss a spot that I could have had a patient put in because you didn't even call and say I'm not going to be there. The silence is deafening. It goes on all the time. I never could understand. I remember my father, military, you tell me, if you're not going to be there, you call them and tell them you're not going to be there. If you can't make that payment, you call the bank and you tell them you're not going to be able to make that payment. You don't wait until they come to you. You go to them. You, you be responsible. Well, people think, well, I'm embarrassed. It'll go well with you if you do that. It will go well with you. It won't go bad with you. So do you do that? Do you show up? Well, I'm running a fever tonight. I'm not feeling good. I'm a little sick. Well, then I'm going to call the leader, the ones in charge of the group, and I'm going to have my 
position covered by somebody. He's not going to walk into a class and be ill-prepared because of my irresponsibility. I'm not going to cost somebody that. I've lived that way for 73 years. I'm going to keep living that way. I want to know. If I know in advance, I'm going to tell you. If I don't show up on this pulpit, I've been shot and killed, or I'm on 281 and can't get out of a traffic jam, and I'm on the phone begging for Jim Williams to get the helicopter and come get me. It just ain't going to happen. It's never happened. I mean, I, I grew up in the military, and one thing you are never is late, which in church means nothing. It's always amazed me. I don't care where I preach and what mega church I preach in. It's amazing 15 minutes after the service starts that three quarters of the crowd will come in. It just amazes me. You know, you almost have to plan that for that to happen. I was thinking, couldn't you just back up? Well, the traffic's bad. Traffic's always bad. It's like Chicago. It ain't ever good. It's always bad on 281. So you give yourself a margin for that, right? It's raining. There'll be an accident. People falling too close. It's Texas. Yep. You got to plan for it. So there are people who, uh, because of their irresponsibility, cause problems for other people. And that's because we're interconnected as a community. So these are people who are tired of taking responsibility for other people's irresponsibility because it's not fair. So the book of Joshua teaches us about irresponsibility. So here we go. Book of Joshua, chapter 7. Here's Joshua, the leader now. Moses has been taken off the scene. He's leading the Israelites across the Jordan River into the promised land. About 650 years before this story happens, God says to a man named Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And God gives Abraham a son, and his son has a bunch of sons, and the nation begins to grow. So God also tells Abraham he's going to raise up a nation in Egypt as slaves to the Egyptians. So the Israelites live under the Egyptian bondage for 430 years until God commands Moses to bring them out. Now Joshua is essentially bringing the Israelites back home where God intends for them to dwell. Now when Israel first left the promised land to go into Egypt, they were about 75 people. Now they're returning to the promised land with nearly 3 million. So this process is going to be very difficult. Now, the other difficult thing is that the Israelites are going to be taking over a land already possessed by other people. So there's going to be a lot of bloodshed and a lot of violence. <clears throat> kind of hard for us, maybe in the New Testament, to understand the God of the Old Testament doing all this, but let me tell you why. Genesis 15, verse 16. This is God speaking to Abraham. He says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So through this dynamic in the Old Testament, though it might not be emotionally satisfying to us who live under grace in the New Covenant, there is an explanation. The cultures of the Holy Land were extremely pagan, so much so, God says, I'm giving them time to right their wrong, to repent. But if they don't repent... Now, this fourth generation, it's going to be better for these cultures to be put out of existence. Here's a little side note. You might want to Google and play with it. Some Christian archaeologists uh, believe with some circumstantial evidence that's possible that many of the pagan culture were humanoid but not human, which is why God had them kill even the babies, 
which seems barbaric to us, but you do remember that the giants were the product of angels cohabiting with women. And this went on even after the flood. There were giants in the land then. So if God didn't create it, but fallen angels did, then it's humanoid, but it's not human. God didn't originate it, so it doesn't have a soul, so God destroys it. Just by the way, interesting thought. I wouldn't take a bullet for it, but it's plausible. And I do know that it definitely occurred, but that's some thought that's just by, by the side of the road. You might want to do Google Nephilim and take a look at some of these races that are mentioned in the Bible that God said destroy them utterly, completely. And yet when he sent uh, Noah to, I mean, uh, Jonah to Nineveh, God spared the people and they had 120,000 children or something, very merciful. Very plausible, just interesting. I like a cup of coffee and challenge some thinking about what might have been at that time. Curious, huh? Yeah, well, I'll look over here. I saw somebody said, okay, okay. Welcome to Saturday night, but Sunday's coming. Okay, all right. So anyway, they, God tells us to destroy all of them. Don't keep anything. So God brought the nation of Israel into the promised land, made it clear he didn't want the Israelites to marry these pagans, to have anything to do with the people. So he's starting something brand new, and the only way to do that is to maintain a completely separate nation with a completely different worldview, a completely different government and sense of justice. There was no moral order in the earth at this time, so God established one with this little bitty nation called Israel. And God ordered the Israelites to punish the pagan nations and take them over and destroy them utterly and push them out of the land. So God, through Joshua, is leading the nation of Israel into Canaan, and the first thing they come up against is the city of Jericho. This is another side story, but there are ten cities they're going to conquer. And the first one is Jericho, and God says the first belongs to the Lord. It's the first portion, the first 10%. God says, I want the first. I don't want you to keep anything, no spoils, but every other city you conquer, it's all yours. You can keep all the 90% of everything else you're going to get, but that's mine. It's dedicated to destruction. It's holy to the Lord. Don't put your fingers on it. And God instructed them clearly about doing it. So they destroy Jericho. They don't lose a man. God supernaturally protects them and gives them victory. But there's something at this point Joshua doesn't know. During the battle of Jericho, one of his men named Achan had disobeyed God's order to leave everything behind. So he found some Armani suits. He found a couple of gold and silver watches. And he saw some spoils and he said, I got to have it. So he takes it, he hides it in the corner of his tent. He's hiding it because he knows he's disobeying. He's being irresponsible, right? Doing exactly what they were commanded not to do. Now they go on to fight Ai. So Jericho would be like San Antonio. Ai would be like Bernie. So they didn't even send up most of the army. They didn't need to. It's a little squat in the road, and they go up to take it, and they lose 36 men and get routed by this little village called Ai. And Joshua is stunned. He can't believe it. Verse 2, Joshua 7. Now, when Joshua sent men from Jericho because they had been defeated uh, to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon to the east of Bethel, he told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. 
when they returned to Joshua, he said, hey, we don't need all the boys. Leave a lot of the army here. We can take these guys down real easy. So they concluded AI is going to be a walkover because we took Jericho with not a problem, and this is a small place, a village. So about 3,000 men went up in the fight, and they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people of Israel melted in fear and became like water. So the Israelites are starting to question, where's God? Where's God? The defeat of Jericho had been so easy, and the battle of Ai had not turned out like anybody thought was possible. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell face down to the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. He remained there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, O sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to kill us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country are going to hear about it, and they're going to surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? So Joshua is saying that what happened with Ai isn't just embarrassing to Israel. It's embarrassing to God because Israel represented this God they serve. And the Lord said to Joshua, Stop the prayer meeting. Get off your face. What are you doing praying? In other words, this is not a time to pray. Now, I think Joshua, if he were to answer that question honestly, he'd have said, well, I'm pretty much blaming you, God, for all the bad things that have just happened. So God continues, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things, things meant to be considered as a sacrifice to God. They have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their back and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go consecrate the people. Tell them. Consecrate yourself in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you have removed them. So here's what's so big about this little story. You get a glimpse into what happens in a community of two people, a family, a community of business, a community of a neighborhood, a community of a nation, or a church, when somebody acts irresponsible. The whole nation is impacted. Israel lost a battle over one man's responsibility because of his disobedience. Achan knew what he was supposed to do. That's why he hid the gold and silver. So one guy gets up, gives in to his lust, and the whole nation is impacted. It just took a couple of government officials in Detroit to poison the water for over a million people, right? The carelessness, the irresponsibility of a few endangered masses. It's just a fact of life. What you do irresponsibly affects more than just you. 
because we are connected as a people, as a nation, as a church, as a family. When one person is irresponsible, not only does he reap what he's sown, but everybody connected to him reaps what he has sown. You see it in marriage. When one spouse is irresponsible with money or alcohol or substance abuse, it affects everybody else in the family. They pay the price for the irresponsibility of that parent. When parents don't act responsibly, their children can't help but reap what the parents have sown. I served in uh, children's court in Bear County several years ago, and when these young people came up before the court, usually only one parent showed up. And taking a look at the parent, it didn't take, it didn't take anybody full of the Holy Spirit to tell the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Totally abuse, neglect, no discipline, no order in the home whatsoever, and the disorder has now affected the children, and now it's going to affect the neighborhood. And we pay for it. That's what I'm sitting in court for. Somebody, that sucker's irresponsibility. I didn't want to bother the kid. I want to go down there and slap the father. Oh, I'm sorry. Does that offend you? He should have been slapped a long time ago when he was about 13 years old before he got married and had children. All right, sorry. Not really, okay. You say, well, Rick, it just doesn't seem fair. Well, it's not fair, but it's true. Irresponsibility and responsibility are community connections. That's why we have to become intolerant of irresponsibility. You can be kind, but you can be firm at the same time and say, in our culture, in our office, in our business, in whatever you're in, uh, whether you're a doctor's office or your lawyer's office or here in a church or in your class or department, we do not tolerate irresponsibility. What you tolerate, you'll replicate. You will absolutely, what you reward, you will also replicate. What you discipline, what you say, we will not accept that. I can, I can remember hearing my mother say on a number of occasions, we don't do that in this house. We don't talk like that in this house. Anybody ever come out of a house like, thank you. A good amen would be all right, right? Absolutely. We don't tolerate that here. No, not on a staff, not on a team, because as soon as you do, it's like, it's like something toxic. It spreads. No, no. There are a lot of things that might not be your fault, but being irresponsible is your fault. When you knew it and did nothing about it, you acted irresponsible and you didn't care about other people having to pick up your load because you just shirked it. So as members of a community, regardless of the size of that community, we got to hold each other accountable to be responsible. You know, I, I know we all have different personality types. I know that. And some of you are more comfortable with confrontation than others are. But the message of this little series is you cannot be tolerant of irresponsibility. So it's easy to feel that confrontation is unloving, but really it's the most loving thing you can do. You read the New Testament and see how Jesus confronted people over and over. Confrontation is part of spirituality. And the best thing you can do for an irresponsible person for their sake, for yours, and for community, is to refuse to put up with their irresponsibility. Otherwise, what's rewarded or ignored gets repeated. Now, there ought to be a firm warning, and depending on your level of compassion, 
certainly not more than three times, but at least by two, you ought to have somebody who's totally irresponsible. I can't have them leading in that class or that home group or on my team or your team because they're irresponsible. I can't depend on them. If I'm in a battalion of men or I'm in a squad of men in combat, I'm depending on every man in that squad to do his assignment. If somebody is irresponsible, we're going to get killed. You see how it affects everybody? So whether it's a church or whether it's business or a marriage or a family, you can't let people be irresponsible because it brings everybody else down. You go out, you get, I mean, how many more signs, how many more commercials, how many more lessons in high school do we need to know if you drink, don't drive? That's not anti-having a drink, it's anti-driving drinking. And yet every night on the new, every night, well, a driver crashed through a house, just missed somebody in the bedroom, uh, crashed through a fence or whatever, drunk driving. So I'd like, if you went back in that person's life, all the way back to their home or family, you could see what runs. You could see that irresponsibility has been a DNA in that whole family. You can see it. And it's being passed on. And now somebody's going to get killed. Families are going to be hurt. Sometimes a loved one is going to be destroyed. It's going to affect a lot of people. A lot of, I remember in Savannah, Georgia, we had one of our young adults drive at a high speed, drunk with his girlfriend, all of them in our church, parents in our church. He hit one of those big uh, magnolia trees, killed him, killed her instantly. He lived, split himself wide open, took a long time recovery, and now we've got funerals, we've got a family devastated, we've got lawsuits. It's horrible. One stupid moment of irresponsibility cost families incredibly. So the idea, it's my life, I can do what I want with it, that's a, little bit, that's a little bit brain dead. It is your life, and you can make a choice, but choices always have consequences. I'm free to make any choice I want, but I'm not free to choose the consequences of my choice. Right? Yeah, it goes on all the time. <laughs> okay, thanks. Somebody give me some chili. All right. So ask yourself these questions. Am I taking responsibility for my life? In the network of people whose irresponsibility impacts me, am I willing to step up and confront their irresponsibility before it becomes my responsibility? I remember one time, some of the guys Nathan may remember, years ago in our old location, we were just getting into video and projectors and stuff, and one of the bulbs went out. I think a bulb is 75 bucks or something back then. It wasn't like we have now, but it went dead, so we just had one going. And I remember thinking, somebody's not thinking the fact that a bulb can burn out. Bulbs burn out all the time in your house, right? So in our pantry, we've got spare bulbs to replace. I did one this afternoon. So I said, that's just irresponsible. You know we're going to lose a bulb, and you don't want to lose it on Sunday with your A game and the large crowd. This is unacceptable. Go buy a bunch of bulbs and put them in there. I don't want anybody to say it's like not having a spare tire. You're going to get a flat sooner or later. You know, so, so why don't you have one? That's being irresponsible. Well, the boy stepped up and did it. So sometimes you have to, you have to do a little bit of thinking ahead to say, what could go wrong? I want to be thinking ahead. What, what could go wrong? What could be messed up so we can be responsible and not irresponsible? 
That's why we have security. We want to be responsible. Somebody come in here with an, uh, a rack of ammo, a, a AK-47, a backpack, camouflage clothes on. You know, somebody would be nice if they stopped them. Say, excuse me, sir. Can I see your ID? Being responsible. Irresponsibility. Okay. In your office, on your team, um, is somebody who's handling your office, the receptionist, or somebody doing your billing, are they being irresponsible? Well, they're going to cost you money. They're going to cost you patience. And you can stop that. If, if, if after some teaching and training, it continues to happen and they prove to be irresponsible, then it's, well, it's just... It's not loving. It is loving. I love my business. I love paying the bills. And I love helping people. And you're messing it up. So you take your little irresponsibility skirt and you waddle right on out of here. I'm going to find somebody who will be responsible. You can't run anything that's worth having with irresponsible people who don't show up or show up when they want. Or we've had people we've had to relieve from staff. They just came when they want or they came late and they put other things in front of it. And I said, that's irresponsible. Many, many years ago, maybe 25 years ago or something, we had somebody we paid full time and they were doing 25% of the work for 100% pay and they were irresponsible. They were serving people outside the church at my expense irresponsible. So I just said, you're fired. Okay. Well, that's not loving. No, loving, if I gave him what I wanted to give him, I'd give him, I'd give him the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is what I would have done. I said, not only are you irresponsible, you're a thief. You're taking God's people's money and you're not using it to serve God's people. You're using it to serve people outside. I am being responsible by firing your irresponsibility. Okay. And I'm not running for political office. No, sir. So are you willing to confront irresponsibility before it becomes your responsibility or somebody else? Now, you can read the rest of the story in Joshua for yourself, but basically here's what happened. Joshua does exactly what God says to do. He stops praying. He doesn't even say amen. He stops hiding behind his prayers. He sends a search party through the camp. He discovers Achan's gold and silver. They put it back in Jericho where it belongs to be destroyed. They punish Achan and his family as an example to the rest of the nation. Then they attack Ai, total victory, and they move on, taking nine more cities. So you have to take action and be willing to confront. Here's the question for us tonight. First of all, to religious people, are you hiding behind your prayer? Are you praying when you need to stand up and do something? Have you been praying about the same thing over and over and over without doing anything about it? Now, if God has already addressed what you're praying about in his word, you don't have to pray about it. Listen carefully. I don't have to pray about being honest. That's clear scripture. Just be honest. You don't have to pray about being faithful to your husband or wife. That's clear scripture. What am I in? Lord, help me be faithful to my wife. Well, she'll help me if, forget the prayers, right? You need to get off your knees and be responsible for your life. If you're spending more money than you make and you keep coming down, say, would you pray for me, pray for our finances? No, 
No, because they're not going to get better and that prayer is not going to be heard because there is something you're doing that you need to stop doing. You can't spend more than you make. You've got to stop that. You don't give, you don't serve, you don't do anything that God can bless, and yet you want prayer. I'm sorry, it ain't going to happen. Our prayers would be in vain. So God says, get up and do something about it. So we had a great class. I think they had 35 in it today, financial freedom to help people get control of their money, get on a good basis so they're not the tail, they can be the head, so they can honor God with their tithe, they can pay their bills, they can have a surplus, and they won't always have to dodge creditors calling in bills and always coming up short at the end of the month. See, prayer, that prayer's not for that. If you've got a health problem, I'm going to pray with you. Sure. But Lord, pray for healing. Healing ain't going to do any good till you stop what you're eating. It, you know, years ago, I was preaching for Benny Hinn. And I believe in divine healing. We've seen a few miracles ourselves. But truthfully, a lot of people could solve some of their health problems with some choices that they make that are difficult to make about the diet and what they choose to eat and how much weight you decide to put on something, you're going to hurt your knees, your bone, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes. And I got doctors sitting out here. If you don't, they will agree with me and say, hey, you could save a lot of doctor bills and a lot of medicine if you just change the choices that you're making. You've been married five times. You ain't learned anything, right? You are direct waiting to happen somewhere. And it's always somebody else's fault. No, it's everywhere you show up, there's a problem. So you're going to have to make some different choices. Well, another way to know whether you need to pray or act is, am I trying to pray my way out of something that I behaved myself into? Hmm? It's, you got to do something about it. I said before, if you're substituting prayer for taking responsibility for your actions, then it just means you're an irresponsible person who prays and nothing is going to happen or change. If you abuse credit cards and you give nothing and you save nothing, you can pray and pray and pray till Jesus comes back. But your financial situation is not going to change. God is not going to answer your prayer until you stand up and do something about that credit card abuse and the habits that you have. Now, once you start taking action, God will help you. But praying while you continue with the wrong choices isn't going to help you at all. So are you taking responsibility for your life or hiding behind your prayers? If somebody heard the things you pray about, would they be frustrated by your lack of effort to do something about it? You know, like, why do they always complain about it? All they got to do is this. Problem solved. Quit tearing down a spider web. Kill the spider. <laughs> right? You ever done that game? If you're praying for your kids, but you're not engaging with them, it's time to stand up and do something. If you're praying for a job, but you're not actively in, investing yourself in a job search, it's time to get out, do some recruiting, get a resume together, and start knocking on some doors. When I, out of, when I got out of college and later got called into the ministry, I went to seminary, and I remember one guy in the class, said, I told him I'd knocked on 28 different company doors to get a part-time job, and it was tough because they were all taken, and I had ended the day after 28 calls with nothing. He said, well, I'm believing God put me here, and God's going to bring me a job. Well, he never finished school, and he never got a job, and he, you have not because you ask not, fool. 
And when I went home that night, I got a call from Sears Roebuck, and they said, somebody quit on the back dock. Would you like to have that part-time job? I said, is the Pope Catholic? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I stepped into my job. See, I was out praying for a job, but I was recruiting for a job too, right? And I stayed with it, and I'd have gone out the next day until something came loose. You know, you want to get married? You asked a girl. She said, no, ask another girl. There's more than one. I, I, I don't know. People, religious people are hard to help. Okay. So ignoring irresponsibility for someone who is irresponsible is a lose-lose situation. God bless you that you have a compassionate heart. God bless you. You're able to function in all of the dysfunction in their background. That's wonderful. But if I keep endorsing their irresponsibility, they lose and we lose together. So you need to step up and confront it in your home, in your children, in an office, in a department. If you're over it where you work, you need to say something about it. If not, you need to move on because that's going to be total chaos. And God's not the author of confusion. You know, irresponsibility creates conflict within a person, and it creates conflict within a community. So the answer is not to pray or have pity on somebody. The answer is to responsibly address irresponsibility. And we ought to be the most responsible people on planet Earth. We should be the ones fearless in our willingness to confront irresponsibility in our community because we're supposed to love one another, and love tells the truth. Confronting irresponsibility helps the person being irresponsible as well as the community they're connected to. So, good question tonight. Are you hiding behind religion? Are your prayers or misguided compassion? Then my prayer is that God will shout into your ear, stand up, just like he said to Joshua. Stand up. Get off your face. Go and take responsibility for the cause of this problem, and I will be with you. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.